Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshuru Militam Venatas Maisi Gurve Namaha Adunulam Bito Bujo Kanagavadatu Sankitanai Kapitoro Kamalaya Taksho Vishwamboro Dwijaboro Yugadhamu Palo Bande Jagat Priyakoro Karunavutaro Bandeshi Krishna Chaitanya Nittananda Shodito Gododai Pushpavanto Chito Sandotumanudo E Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinavandu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kantarada Kantanamostute Tapakanchanu Gurangi Radhe Brindabhanishwari Vishobhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Nama Chintamani Krishnas Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha Purna Shuddha Nitya Mukta Vinatvang Nama Namino Shri Gauri Vaishnavgur Parampara Ki Jai Hari Nam Prabhu Ki Jai Shri Shri Krishna Arjun Ki Jai Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai Kaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai so we are now beginning the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. We've been having these discussions for a couple of years now on a fairly regular basis. And we've come this far, completing three chapters, beginning chapter four of Bhagavad Gita. So Tonight I want to discuss the induction to the chapter, covering three verses. Let me read them to you. Sri Bhagavan Uvacha Imam Vibhaspate Jogam Proktavan Aham Avyayam Vivishan Manave Prahu Manurikshvakave Pravit Evam Paramparam Praptam Imam Raja Shayubidu Bhagavan Sri Krishna said, I explained this imperishable science of yoga to Vibhaswan. Vibhaswan spoke it to Manu. And Manu, in turn, imparted it to Ikshvaku, O conqueror of the enemy. Visionary kings thus obtained this knowledge through disciplic succession, at present under the influence of extended time here on earth. This teaching of yoga has been obscured. It is that very same ancient teaching of yoga that I am teaching you today. It is the ultimate secret. But I tell it to you because you are my trusted devotee and friend. With these words, Bhagavan Sri Krishna opens the fourth chapter, which deals with a number of things. The chapter is entitled Gyan Yoga. So that means the yoga of knowledge. 
previous chapter, as you may recall, was entitled Karma Yoga, Yoga of Action. And while this chapter focuses on Jnana Yoga, at the same time, it introduces some very important uh, ideas that help uh, serve to build upon the actual theme and conclusion of the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is about bhakti. It's spoken by Krishna to his devotee. So it is about devotion to Krishna. Thus far, however, we have not heard Krishna say anything about himself with regard to his being God, which is one of the conclusions of the Bhagavad Gita. Nor have we heard anything directly about devotion to him. Both of these important elements will be introduced in this chapter in the context of explaining Jnana Yoga, which following the, the discourse from the previous chapter, if you recall, is the, is the fruit of Karma Yoga, Nishkam Karma Yoga. In other words, if you engage in the realm of karma appropriately, and in doing so, the fruit of your of your action is offered to Bhagwan, to God. Then, an intangible, if you will, uh, a tangible but uh, invisible, uh, an internal gift will be the result, and that is mystic insight, wisdom, not theoretical knowledge but uh, practical knowledge, realized knowledge, insight that, that cannot be gained by another, uh, by the ordinary uh, means of knowing. Ordinary means of knowing, we, we gather information and um, with our senses and mind, and then we use that information for our our purposes, but yoga, spiritual life, is about moving in the world in a, in a very different way. It's about moving in the world with some understanding that God has an agenda, reality has an agenda, and I'm, I'm part of that agenda. So move in accordance with that is to move away, if you will, from being the, the uh, having the idea that I'm the center, that I'm the enjoyer, that the small world of my experience gathered through my senses and mind is just that, a very small world. It's not the big picture. It's not ultimate reality. In it I allow I'm allowed to, to appear big, but in reality I'm very small. So, as we start to come out from underneath that oppression, if you will, then we start to enter into the bigger picture of life. 
and we gain insight that otherwise would not be possible. So the fruit of this, this karma yoga or karma yoga acting in such a way that the fruits of my efforts I am, am not attached to and I offer them for the pleasure of God. The immediate fruit of that work is this wisdom, knowledge. Knowledge means of the self. Knowledge that I am not the small, the limited sense of self that I thought I was by means of uh, knowing through the mind and, and senses. Wonderful, mystical thing. So this is, in one sense, what the fourth chapter is about. But the whole Bhagavad Gita, as I mentioned earlier, is about devotion, about bhakti. So here in these beginning six chapters, we have a discussion of discussion of different types of yoga. But all of them are discussing either direct directly as we come to bhakti yoga at the end of the sixth chapter and then deal with it exclusively in the, in, 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 in the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth chapters. And indirectly, karma yoga, gyan yoga, dhyan yoga, and so forth. Directly and indirectly, bhakti yoga is what is being discussed in Bhagavad Gita. It's the conclusion of the Gita. It must be because Bhagavan Sri Krishna is speaking to his devotee Arjuna about how to know him. And by loving him you can you can know him. To love him is to know him. So by introducing the idea for the first time that he is God in this chapter, and we find that implied in these uh, this introduction here. And the idea of being a devotee of God, very important elements of the text are being introduced. They'll be elaborated upon in some detail later on. But it serves at least in a sense, in at least in a sense to underscore something that we've been emphasizing all along in our discussion, discussion of these earlier chapters. Again, that the real theme of the Gita is bhakti devotion. So even while he's talking about the fruits of karma yoga, jnana yoga, that mystic knowledge, it's in the context of explaining what is devotion. In other words, in a life of devotion, one will also be detached from the results of... of uh, detachment will come. Detachment is what we want in this karma yoga, to be detached from the fruits of our work. Detachment will be there. Knowledge will be there, and more will be there, and that more is, of course, yet yet to be discussed at some some length. But as we've seen all along, as we saw in the beginning, for example, of the previous chapter, where Arjuna was confused about Krishna's speech in chapter two, whether he's emphasizing action or whether he's emphasizing a life of contemplation, really he was emphasizing bhakti. We discussed that at some length. Now, here also the same thing we find. Let us examine it at some length. Krishna says, Imam vivasvate yogam proktavan aham avyayam. 
विभुस्वान मानवे प्राह Ostensibly here we find that Krishna is giving some history. He wants Arjuna to follow his advice. And so in order to encourage him to do so, he gives the history of that which he's teaching him. So that he might know this is not some new fangled idea that uh, that I've just come up with. After all, there are some revolutionary concepts here. Arjuna was a de- was a devoted religious person, and uh, he gave many reasons in the first chapter of the Gita why he shouldn't engage in the battle that was at hand. And Krishna dismissed those <coughs> reasons, even though the reasons were well supported from uh, logic and reason, reason, and from scripture also, from the scriptures that deal with religion how one should behave in this world. Krishna immediately turned his head upside down and said, yo, anyway, you're not part of this world. You're not the body. You're not that body. Just from his very opening statement. So, this in itself is, is uncommon knowledge. It may be uncommon even to be religious, or to speak of, to think that there is uh, uh, a... An, an ideal that incorporates religion but transcends it at the same time. And again, that's just the beginning of what he's talking about because to gain knowledge of the self as being different from matter, that I'm consciousness, not matter, that's a, that's a huge thing. If I tell you uh, that that uh, all the names and forms of this world are here today and, and, and gone tomorrow, and that there's one thing that remains constant in amidst the ever-changing material phenomena, and it's you. That is, uh, uh, someone asked me the other day that, you know, when you're teaching, there's a lot of names and people you cite from the past and so forth and so on. And, and um, But how relevant is all of this to me today in this world? And uh, the question ran a little further, something to the effect that other religions talk about things that are more practical to us in our everyday life, down-to-earth life and so forth. So how uh, am I to, is one to relate to this? It seems a bit removed from everyday life. I answered it differently then, but it's just coming to my mind again now. And I would like to say that, that, uh, yes, it is very removed from our everyday life. And you and all of us are very removed also in actuality, from our everyday life, what is everyday life? It is just the moving of, the, of what we call the, the modes of nature. It's very, your, your reality, yourself, is very removed from that. So a religious tradition, a spiritual tradition, that seeks to remove us from what's important to everyone else that may have more value than we think at a glance. How relevant, is it? How relevant is it to know what you are? 
And if you happen to be something other than what you thought you are, and the world is something very different than what you think it is, is that not relevant, important, valuable? So valuable. But we're drawn to think other things are more important by the force of our mind and senses. So Krishna wants to remove Arjuna from that, bring him to the real, to the real world. Bhagavad Gita gives us uh, a jolt in this direction. In order to encourage Arjuna to pursue this idea and more, and as I say, it's a really about bhakti which is far beyond the idea that there's a difference between you and matter. It can be very confusing. And again, if I say to you, there's a difference between you and the body, all these forms that you see are here today and gone tomorrow. You cannot put any trust in them. Trust yourself. <laughs> know thyself. Oh, maybe we can grasp that theoretically. Maybe we can be inspired to pursue that in some way. But if after telling you that, I say, at the same time, there are forms that are not temporary and names that are not temporary. It becomes more confusing. It's more uh, uh, difficult to grasp. It's like saying to a child, actually, we're not standing still. It only looks like we're standing still. The earth is moving around at how fast? 300,000 miles an hour we're going. So if she finally, if she gets, okay, gets a grip on that, okay, it looks like we're standing still, but we're actually going 300,000 miles an hour, like this, round and around and around. And then you say, and not only are you going around and around, but like this, but we're also going around like this. And other things are going around us, and we then uh, the mind starts to spin. And so, this teaching about bhakti, and here it is, it is mentioned in the third verse of these three introductory verses. Rahasyahi etaduttamam. There are some very deep secrets to be told in this connection. Very big rahasya, secret. Such secrets in the context of bhakti that the secret knowledge that there's a difference between you and your body is common. That's commonplace. That's, that's, that's the, and on the ground floor of the house of bhakti that goes so many stories high. Rahasya hi How do we get that? that kind of secret knowledge. So, to help Arjun to pursue these ideas that have his head spinning already, here in the beginning of the fourth chapter, Krishna gives some history. Let me tell you that what I'm telling you, there's some history to this. It goes back for a long time. Other people have done it. It's not just something new. So it may be good for us also, Bodhya Vaishnavas, who are pursuing this in, this in in our particular tradition, to know a little bit about the history of our Gaudiya Sampradaya, our lineage. 
getting into all those names of those people and things that seem so irrelevant from hundreds of years ago and so forth. Arjuna, Krishna is indicating here there may be some value in knowing those things. They may seem obscure and the names are odd, I can't pronounce them. And, and uh, they lived so long ago, what value does it have on me? Krishna is indicating here is some value in that. That may help you to understand that uh, the, the, the weight of this, the importance of this. Who were those? Who does that name? That's just a name in a book, but who was that person? What, what was he like? How did he lead, lead his life? How did he, he or she influence others and so forth? Through what effort did what we are teaching today come about? What struggles in the world uh, great saints underwent? What wonderful things are in your, in, in our past in regard to the tradition? Just like we don't think it is irrelevant to find out about our family tree and look back and see how far back we can go. The farther back we can go, the, 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 the more wonderful we think it is. And I was related to so-and-so back then and so on. So, in a very general sense, uh, Krishna is encouraging Arjuna here, no, there's some history, there's some history to this. And it's, it's, it will encourage you. You'll find you are part of something very great. Even if it seems new to you now. And it will seem new to all of us the first time we come in touch with this. It has a great history and you're connected with that. And if we look at it very closely, we'll see that it makes our moment in history now that we're absorbed in outside of this pursuance of, of spiritual life looked very small and very insignificant in comparison. Just the opposite of what the, the questioner was uh, posing that I mentioned. Just the opposite. So, he says, Imam Vivaswate Jogam Proktavana Hamavyayam. He said, here it is now. Here in this sentence, it is implied, Krishna speaking, "I'm God." And Arjuna's sharp, so as we'll hear in the next discourse, he could pick up on it. What are you saying? You're sitting here as my chariot driver, and you're saying that you spoke this same system of yoga that you're teaching me today long, long, long time ago. Okay, well, many people live for, for long lives or, or, or many lives, we're taught. We all have many, many lives. But it's not only that. Not only speak it a long time ago, but who did Krishna teach yoga to? The gods. <laughs> he taught yoga to, 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 to God, to the sun god, Vibhushan, Surya, Surya Narayan, he taught yoga to. Krishna teaching yoga to Narayan. Arjun is, we'll hear, as I say, in the next discourse, he could, he was very astute. This is the implication. Krishna is introducing, and, and, and when Arjun asks him about it, as we'll see, Krishna goes into detail. And the theology of the Gita, a cornerstone of the theology of the Gita, is now 
in place. Cornerstone, Krishna's God. You have to have, if you have, want bhakti, the book is about bhakti, you have to have the, bhakti means love. You have to have an object of love. That is Krishna. Krishna is the perfect object of love. Love, as I many times said, is about giving, not about getting. So if we want to love, we have to give. And if we are to love completely and fully, then we have to find an object in which we can repose complete and absolute love, who is capable, an object that is capable of accepting unlimited love. This is what we mean by Krishna. This is why Krishna is considered amongst all the gods, goddesses, amongst all of his own appearances, he's the fountainhead. Because we find in Krishna all possibilities of love. This is the idea. If you study the Krishna Leela, the Leela of Krishna, you find all possibilities of love are manifest in purity there. Krishna, the supreme taker. So we can give unlimitedly to him. And when you find that proper center for giving to, he is, why is he qualified to take? Because by his taking, everyone's getting. Just like the stomach is qualified to take the food, not other parts of the body. If other parts of the body complain, why I only have to pass it on? Hand has to pass it to the tongue, tongue has to pass it to the throat, throat has to pass it to the stomach. If any one of them complains and tries to hold on at their, their point, then what will be the result? They will not be nourished. But if, it, if they assist, give to the stomach, then mystically the whole body is nourished. This is the idea. This is, this is the position of Krishna. So in a very uh, subtle way here, he introduces the fact that he is God. He is the supreme object of worship. Imam Bibashwate Jogam Proktavanahmadyam. He says, I spoke this long time ago to the sun god. Proktavan. It also means very comprehensively. Something else is being introduced here. A very important principle. The Guru. And we are also learning Sakshadhoritena. Samasta Shastra. It means that acharyam bijaniyam navamanyetakarichit. The Guru is Krishna. The Guru means who represents Krishna, like an ambassador. Ambassador is not the president, but he's treated like the president in a foreign country because he represents the president. So in a, in a representative sense, because he represents and embodies that knowledge, not only because he or she, the guru, represents and embodies the knowledge, should the guru be respected, Krishna says, like my very self, know the acharya, the guru, to be my very self. He should be treated like myself. Not only because he has knowledge, but, and embodies the knowledge, but because he's deputed 
to distribute it to us personally. In other words, it's a localized manifestation of the Godhead, the Guru Tattva, just tailor-made for us. So all attention should be given there. What Krishna is saying here, implying here, is that which makes the sadhu, the saint, worth listening to, which makes him great, Mahatma, great soul, is that he recognizes my greatness. Thereby he becomes great. And rather than giving his own opinion, arising from his own mind and senses, he will give my opinion consistently. He's given up his own opinion, his own will. He's embraced my will. And in this way he should be given regard. So there's something very special in this uh, transmission that Arjuna, Krishna is speaking about to Arjuna. This is some history. It goes back. I'm God. And I taught this to the sun god, and I taught him Praktavan very completely, comprehensively. What is it? Verse, the Guru mentioned Shrotriyam uh, Brahmanishtam. So he has to have heard himself, Shrotriyam, means to have the theoretical knowledge. And then the spiritual standing to present it with some force, with some power, that will be able to, to impress upon us, change us, move us. But if there are any questions, oh, he should be able to answer. It was the Proktavan. He gave it very, he did it very nicely. He gave all, explained in, 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 in detail. It's like we will find later in the Gita, after Arjuna, after Krishna explains the whole Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna, he says, so, have you understood? And are you prepared to, to act as I have instructed? And he implies there, if you don't, I'm, I'm, if you don't understand, I'll, I'm prepared to explain the whole thing again. Sometimes some of my students, they ask me, oh, I didn't want to bother, I don't want to bother you, but uh, I, I, I had this question, I know I shouldn't ask it. Uh, <laughs> no, it is, it is, I'm living to answer the questions. That is the, that is the whole, uh, please don't cheat me. I want to serve also. So, and uh, of course, if we don't ask, then how will we know? And we don't want to ask because we don't want to be thought as if we don't know. But he knows you don't know. <laughs> Why don't you ask? <laughs> That's a given that you don't know. <laughs> so, he says, I spoke it to the sun god, that means a long time ago. And he says, I did it in a very thorough way. And what was it? This tradition of yoga that is avyayam. He uses the word avyayam. Avyayam means it's imperishable. So, ostensibly, he's talking about the yoga, if you will, of, uh, of, of knowledge, the culture of that, that arises from appropriate action detached action. So it's imperishable in a sense that it is enjoined in the scripture, which is said to be imperishable. Of course, 
we may wonder how the scripture is imperishable because even if you um, use the most sophisticated arch archival methodology, means of archiving on, on the disk and bury it in the mountain and in a vault and, and so forth. Uh, still, when the Ice Age comes, it will be questionable whether they, they will be found after the melting. So how is the scripture imperishable? Of course, it means that, that, that the scripture is manifest in, 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 in the book, but it's not limited to the pages. Where, where time meets eternality, and that which is eternal takes on a temporal appearance in order to communicate in the realm of the temporal. In other words, it speaks the language of the people. It's eternal, but it takes on a, a temporal appearance in the form of book and print and, and so on and so forth. But the message is eternal. So in this sense, the, the message of karma yoga, or jnana yoga for that matter, is imperishable. We give up, we leave karma yoga behind, when we're, according to the progression here given in the Gita, uh, when we come to, uh, to, to, to jnana, we're relieved from karma. We don't have to act with detachment because we are, we've, we've gained the fruit of detached action, knowledge of the self. But there's a yoga of that cultivation also of the self. We call jnana yoga kind of a contemplative type of yoga. So that's enjoined in the scriptures, so that's also, in that sense, imperishable. The results of these, these yogas, which transcend the methods themselves, is imperishable. So in that sense, they're both imperishable, but more so because what he's ultimately speaking about is bhakti. This word is very appropriate, avyayam, imperishable. Why is that? Because if we do karma yoga, we do it for a purpose, to get gyan. When we get the gyan, the karma is left behind. When we cultivate gyan, we go, we become gyan. And therefore the cultivation of gyan is left behind. When we cultivate bhakti, devotion, bhakti, when we get bhakti, what can you do if you have bhakti? <laughs> you have to do bhakti. If you do something to get knowledge and you become, you realize, I am a unit of knowledge, non-dual knowledge, chit, anu, I'm a particle of chit, consciousness. It means knowledge. Then what you do, the knowledge you gather, the contemplation you undergo to realize that, that is left behind. But when you do bhakti, what do you get? Bhakti. So what do you do? Bhakti. So bhakti is avyayam in the full sense. It's imperishable. Sometimes we call it the liberated yoga rather than the yoga for liberation, to achieve liberation. It is the yoga, the union within liberation that causes liberation to come to life. Liberation is twofold. It, it puts out 
the fire of material existence. It extinguishes death. We're all burning in a forest fire of material existence. We are waiting on death row. In terms of our identity, I'm Indian, I'm American, male, female, all these identities are illusory, they're, they're condemned. With the rising and the setting of the sun, every, uh, our uh, life is being taken away, as we know it. So, liberation means it's twofold. It, it, it ends death. It extinguishes death, on the one hand. But on the other hand, it gives, gives life. So what is the life of mukti? Oftentimes people talk about mukti in terms of its extinguishing death. That sounds like, that is a profound idea. That's very good. Wow, I never die. But is there any life in not dying? Because all that you know to be life, mukti puts an end to that, <laughs> gives death to that. And all that you know to be life is death. It is just waiting on death row. So the sentences commuted, uh, you're out. But what do I do? I'm a soul. And now I'm not all those. I'm free from all that. But is there? A, do I sit now forever? Shanti, shanti, shanti. Well, Krishna says, there's life in mukti also. And that is bhakti. So if you engage in bhakti, for the sake of bhakti, devotion for its own sake, death will be extinguished. And you will, you will know in advance, in a general way, what life will be like. Therefore, this discussion of Krishna Leela, this is, this is a particular Leela, Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna is instructing Arjuna in all these things. But Krishna represents the very, very heart of divinity, so the love life, the romantic life of the Absolute. There's some information about that available. And in Bhakti, we, we, we gather that information. We have some general idea. While we're extinguishing our uh, doing away with a, uh, uh, getting off of the death row, it's like in prison some people are take up a, uh, a task or a, uh, a profession. Maybe you go into the prison, you had no profession, therefore you were a thief, and it, but you start to get reformed and they teach you how to, how to, how to teach something. We're talking about a friend of mine, who, a person I know who was in, in prison and, uh, and how he, he learned something and he taught it in, in prison. Now he's doing that, he's out of prison. So something like that. Bhakti involves that, uh, the cultivation, uh, not only the reformation, or the, the doing away with the, the propensity to commit the crime, but what will be the healthy life. So twofold. Muktir hitvanatarupam swarupena vilastiti, Bhagavatam says. Being freed from the negative and becoming situated in the positive standing of one's own swarup, one's own nature in relation to Krishna. So bhakti, therefore, is abhayam, in the true sense of the word, imperishable. It has developmental stages, from sadhana bhakti, 
the bhakti of practice, to bhava bhakti, the bhakti of emotion and liberated life, to prema, the distilling of those emotions that turns into love, love of God. So what is the difference between these three stages? They are all bhakti. The difference is like the difference between a ripe and, a, and a, an unripe and a blossoming and a ripened fruit. A mango is a mango is a mango. There may be unripened fruit, but when we see what do we ha- when we see the unripened mango in the tree, then we think, oh, mango is coming. Mango season will be coming soon. Very good. And when we smell the sweet mango blossom, oh, coming! It's now coming! Now coming! Very soon. And then it falls from the tree. We can taste the, the sweet fruit. So this bhakti is very. Very wonderful. It is just like that. So many scriptural statements are there to give support to this idea. What is the value of of bhakti? Just by be entering into the house of the coming to the door of bhakti, shraddha. If you if by good 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 company, good association, it dawns on you. Yes, this is what life's about. It must be about love, because it doesn't make any sense. I can't make sense out of life, no matter how I try. So many philosophers have tried to make sense out of life, and they just differ with one another on so many points, and it just make your head fatter and fatter if you, if, you, if you think about all that. It doesn't satisfy you. You become depressed, actually, <laughs> just studying philosophy. You cannot figure it out. So it doesn't make sense. It must be about love, which doesn't make sense either. I've many times said it. It doesn't make sense that if you give, you will get, but you will. This is the mystery of life. So we're not saying anything. We're not giving something foreign idea, some foreign religious doctrine here, but we're talking about this very practical observation. Life is really about giving. The way life moves progressively is by giving, by sacrifice, by giving. And then when we come to Krishna, as again I said earlier, what we've all, all we're really talking about is that manifestation, that face of reality that affords us the opportunity to give completely. So this is bhakti. If you take it up, if you come, if you develop this, uh, get the idea, yes, if you catch it, this is what it's about. Then if the teacher sees that, then he feels assured. Okay, assured. Soon there will be blossom and soon there will be fruit. For us, it may seem to take forever but if he can plant the seed of shraddha in, a, in us, if the shraddha means faith, if he can awaken that within us, then you feel confident. It will grow in time. Things can be done to help grow. Watering, giving teaching, setting a good example, engagement and, and so forth, proper engagement. And as much as you avail yourself to that, as much as you will grow. But my point here is that... You will grow. It will come. It will. You, you will blossom, and you will, you will ripen. Without a doubt. Because, if you have this sense about Krishna, that is called shraddha, the Krishna will not leave you alone. How is that? If somebody who loves Krishna shares his faith with you, which is a contagious thing, by being around him, you will get that. In this way, he shows affection to you. 
then how will Krishna think about that person? Someone who loves me, loves that person, I love that person too. This is love psychology. How will we get Krishna's attention? That is very difficult. He's surrounded by so many lovers. Lakshmi, Sahasra, Sata, Sambrama, Sevyamanam. Oh, and their love is extraordinary. They make him forget that he's God. What kind of power is in their love? So how we will get his attention? We're calling him God. <laughs> he forgot that he's God. How we will get his attention? Some of those lovers of Krishna may be amongst us. That we call sadhu, sadhu sangha, to associate with such people. In good association, those people, they have compassion for us. They want to see us become a lover of Krishna. So because that person has a line to Krishna and he has compassion for someone else, then Krishna's attention goes to that person. So find that kind of person that is most valuable. I can tell you from my own experience, that is the most valuable thing. Then, as we'll hear, this comes up, as much as we pay attention there and apply ourselves, then we'll ripen, we'll blossom and we'll ripen. If you don't pay attention now, you don't take advantage to that extent, you will take time. So, some obligation is there on your side also. So here, in the first verse, Krishna says, Imam vivasvate yogam proktavan aham avyayam vivasvan manave prahur mano So these names mentioned, he says first, Sun God. I gave this imperishable science of yoga to the Sun God. I explained it to him in detail. He passed it down to Ikshvaku. Ikshvaku to Manu. So these are big names in, in the broader history of the world, <laughs> of the universe, uh, according to the Hindu scriptures. In other words, this knowledge was meant for very uh, extraordinary people, very qualified people. Kings are mentioned here, leaders of the, of the, of the race, of a race, of a, of, a, of a human race. Manu is like the uh, paradigmatic uh, father of the uh, emblem of the, of the race, of the human race, father of mankind. He's considered Ikshvaku and a god, Surya. So Arjun's hearing this. He's hearing this. these great people receive this knowledge. Remember this point. It's it's noble. It's for it's for it's for great important people. Once Prabhupada, my guru Maharaj, was asked, "Why the most intelligent, important people don't take to this?" He said, "They do. Brahma has taken to. <laughs> Shiva has taken." <laughs> he immediately stepped out of from his spoke from his world. Hmm? <laughs> Who's important? And when and student was thinking, so this one is the president. This is important, and prime minister that is important. No, not so important. Then Krishna says, "What? Evam parampara praptam, evam rajasya obidu, sakalena mahata yoga nashto parantapa." He says, "Rajashi." Rajashayavidhu. Rajashi means, Raj means king and Rishi means like visionary. So again, these were, these visionary people, uh, 
Manu, Ikshvaku, Surya, Vibhushan, these were these are the kind of people who this knowledge was passed down through. Very extraordinary people. And passed down means parampara. He says, evam parampara praptam. That this message is handed down. That's what it means. Parampara means literally one after another. It means continuous, continuing. So if there is no one after the other, there is no parampara. That's what it means. If we say, for example, that we have a parampara, but it stopped here with this guru, and he's the last one, then there is no, then that's the end of the parampara. There's no meaning to, to, to it's an oxymoron to say, it, the parampara stopped, our parampara stopped here. It means <laughs> you don't have a parampara. You're not in the parampara anymore. One after another, continuous, keeps going, unbroken like a chain and links and they have to be connected. <laughs>